0: Okay, uh, good evening everybody uh, and welcome to uh, our event Looking Into Cambridge's Future. Uh, so this is um, a special event tonight to tie in with the latest edition of our Research Horizons magazine. Uh, so there will be copies of the magazine um, outside um, on your way out, so please do feel free to pick up a copy and have a look through it, um, it's a really fascinating read. Um, So this time, uh, Research Horizons uh, is focusing on Cambridge University's position in the east of England. So looking at how we're collaborating with partners across the region to champion its assets and address some of its major challenges. So to quote our Vice-Chancellor, our university must be a good local citizen, an advocate for the region, a national asset and a truly global actor. So tonight, we're asking the question, what does the future hold for Cambridge? So how will its economy grow, and will our housing and transport infrastructure be able to cope? So to answer these questions, we have three distinguished speakers from the University of Cambridge. So we have uh, Matthew Bullock, who is the Master of St. Edmunds College and Vice Chairman of Cambridge Ahead. We have Dr. Gemma Burgess, who is the Acting Director of the Cambridge Centre for Housing and Planning Research, And finally, Dr. Ying Jin from the Department of Architecture. So we've asked each speaker to speak for about 15 minutes. Uh, so that should leave plenty of time at the end for questions. Um, before we start, I do have an apology to make, which is we have some uh, technical difficulties, which means that the screen, uh, just like the future of Cambridge, is a little bit unclear. Um, so, um, so when it comes to this, the, the speech, uh, to the talks, uh, we will be putting you in the dark, I'm afraid. Um, but, hopefully, <laughs> but hopefully not the speakers. I think hopefully the speakers will be shedding light on this, this important issue. So to start, um, I'd like to to welcome uh, Matthew Bollick. I was a banker uh, for 40 years, and they
1: say that the role of a banker is to shine old light on new problems. <laughs> 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 so, uh, thanks very much. Um, I'd like to talk about the Cambridge Futures 3, which is a project which we've been running here in Cambridge. Uh, you and I have worked on it with another colleague, Andy, Professor, uh, Dr Andy Cosh, for about four years now. So this is kind of quite a large piece of analysis. I'm just going to show you the tools that we've developed. These are interesting tools based upon uh, our concern to analyze what is happening in Cambridge, but I would say these tools are available for any local authority area in the country, and that's quite an exciting point, I think. So uh, this is a project which um, was funded by uh, Cambridge Ahead. I persuaded my colleagues in the commercial sector that that's what they should do, and it updates some work which was undertaken around the turn of the century by Professor Marcella Chenique in the Department of, uh, of Architecture, um, where an idea about the development of Cambridge first came out there. I don't know if any of you remember that, with John Durrant, who was then leader of the council, uh, and Alec Brewers. Now, um, one of the reasons that drove this was that I became, I, I, my role has been for a long time a financier of technology companies in the Cambridge area. And one of the problems I saw was that the council in its forecasts for growth, seemed to be very substantially underestimating what the rate of uh, growth was here uh, in the city. And this was based on ONS data, and that concerned me, because if they were reading the speed of the car wrong, then no wonder we were probably taking some bumps as we went. And what was happening was that the employment growth uh, that we've seen in Cambridge has been much faster, Uh, than the councils were estimating, and I won't go into this, but Gemma Burgess, who's going to follow me, will talk to you quite a bit about the effect of what happens in the housing market if you don't have these things uh, match more closely. And it has clearly affected the quality of life in this city, it has affected the inequality in this city. We are now regarded as the most unequal city uh, in Britain by the uh, Centre for Cities. And it has driven things like commuting. And I don't know if you've got any commuting slides, but we can see very clearly the effects uh, of this underestimation. And the aim of this project is basically to reset the measurement of growth uh, and then to create scenarios about how we might manage what actually is going on uh, and possibly catch up with some of the the backlog. And the reason why we have to do this and be very scientific about it is, frankly, because if we're going to persuade the Treasury because they're the people who are gonna put the money up, uh, that we are, uh, have a case. We have to have something which is fairly robust. Now, the, the idea behind this work um, is that basically uh, we see the Southern Cambridge economy. And I, by that, I, I, I basically mean, I'm gonna show you some, a map in a moment. We started off with a 20 mile radius around Great St. Mary's. That was our initial figure. Now, we can actually break all the data down uh, by, um, local authority area, and actually even more finely down to something called MSOA. Um, but I'm going to talk to you really in general terms about the southern Cambridge economy. It's very different from the northern western Cambridge economy, which is Peterborough, and even more different from the northeastern economy, uh, which is the Fens. But basically it says this is a system, you can think of this as a system. People uh, live here uh, or come here to work, and they basically orient where they Build, have their housing by where they work and the travel distances to it and the price of the housing and the quality of the amenities around the housing. Ying can talk to you more about this. It's called spatial equilibrium modeling, but people make trade-offs. They actually say, well, the house is very... I could live there, but it's very expensive. I can't afford it, so I'll live there, and the journey to work is, is not too bad. Uh, and this optimization leads to a pattern of distribution typically uh, driven by work. And that's a very important point, because most planning is actually driven around housing, which is a product of this model, but actually most people tend to work out where they're going to live. Now some people obviously work in relationship to where they live beforehand, but the major driver we found has actually been where people work. So you need to drive your planning policies off the location of your employment and not the other way around. That's a very important policy point. Companies also make decisions about where they're going to locate in this system. They make them on slightly different uh, measures. They base them on particularly on labor uh, and land availability, also connections to motorways or other forms of communication, Uh, and their relationships importantly with their suppliers, with their customers, and with their rivals. And one of the things that is quite striking here, and I'll show you a couple of maps, or a map, um, of what's called agglomeration, technology companies Uh, you may have heard this word clustering the technical term in the the jing and the lingo is agglomeration Uh, and they tend to agglomerate together and this is not entirely understood why because they don't talk to each other but they share labor and they compete with each other and they often share common facilities and they're often in relationship to a large research facility Uh, but that actually that that feature drives up costs in itself because they tend to put the prices up when they want to be uh, close to each other and that may cause further um, congestion issues, anybody who comes in around Milton Road and looks at the science (laughs) park, you'll know that the top end there where it meets the A14 uh, is a very difficult junction. And one of the ideas behind this is that if, in fact, you have transport policies and planning zoning policies, you can start to change these optimization decisions. That's the basic kind of thought behind the overall model. it comes from, what we're going to present is from three different institutes tonight. I'm going to cover the first, which is from the Center for Business Research, which is in the Judge Business School, and it's the work of Dr. Andy Koch, uh, who I'm afraid has been in Spain, so can't be with you tonight. Um, the second is the, uh, Gemma, she's from the Cambridge Center for Housing and Planning Research. And the third, analyzing the spatial impacts and creating the spatial growth scenarios, uh, is Ying Jin from a reader in the Department of Architecture. And all this research was sponsored both by Cambridge Ahead and actually by the mayor because it fed in in a major way to a big report which was published uh, last September under the chairmanship of Dane Kate Barker uh, for the government called the uh, Cambridge and Peterborough Independent Economic Review. Right, let's come to my, my bit which is really about measuring growth. Um, if you think of that, this area, this sort of two rings, that is the Cambridge Ahead area, it's 20 miles from Great Samaras. And if you walk down a street analytically, you can see that the area is made up of a different series of players and that each one of these can be analyzed. Now, let me explain. The largest group (coughs) of companies here in Cambridge are those that are based here and have their registered company offices here and have usually grown up from here. And an example of of that is, for example, Ridgen's, which was a business started by Cyril Ridgen, Uh, It's now been bought by a Welsh company, but it is a Cambridge-based company to start with, or a company called Aviva, which was built around the Cambridge, uh, uh, the computer-aided design centre out on uh, High Cross. And those companies are registered here in Cambridge, and we have their accounts, and we can look at their total business based on their accounts here. There's also, uh, and we distinguish in our work between knowledge-intensive, which are in the green box here, uh, and and non-knowledge-intensive businesses. Uh, And I'll show you uh, about what I mean by that, but essentially we take a pretty strict view about what are the knowledge-intensive businesses. We don't include distributors, we include people who make things uh, in the STEM area. Um, The non-corporates are things like the university. Uh, We have a lot of data about the university and its labs. Uh, And also things like the arts theatre, which is not knowledge-intensive, but obviously is, is based in the cultural area. Then a large group that we should not forget are these Cambridge Active Companies. Now, these are companies like Barclays Bank or Marks & Spencer, which have branches here in Cambridge because they're servicing this market town. Uh, and there are uh, about um, just over a 1,000 of these companies here in Cambridge with representation. And amongst them, interestingly and increasingly, have been a group of knowledge-intensive businesses coming into Cambridge because they're very interested in the development of this area from a scientific point of view. So companies like Microsoft, who came and put a lab here on the West Cambridge site and now has a big office block in Station Road, uh, people like Amazon, who are now in Station Road, uh, and people like Huawei, who are a Chinese electronics company, much in the news, who not only have a lab out on the West Cambridge site, but have recently bought the Spicer's factory uh, outside of Sawston. And they've been a rather interesting group because they've been growing quite rapidly, coming in and adding to the growth derived from Cambridge-based companies. There's then the public sector. uh, So you've got people like the police and the army. uh, And some of those uh, in the hospitals, for example, are very knowledge intensive. Um, And lastly, and this is a number which is a group which is very difficult to identify in total. Everybody says it's 15% of employment are plumbers and and single, uh, single man businesses not incorporated, usually just individuals. And what we've done, uh, what Andy Koch does is amazingly, he takes, goes to Company House, and he draws down all the reports and accounts of all the companies based in Cambridge. And he cleans them up. He has a method of kind of, of people form groups and subsidiaries, deals with that. And then he analyzes what their turnover is and what their employment is, their global employment, because that include people who are away from Cambridge as well as those who are here. And we break it down into 84 sectors, it's extremely detailed, and we have a lot of detail also about the uh, non-corporate, about the university labs and and, and also the the hospitals. Um, So we have ability to start to populate these uh, companies. These ones we can't get much data on. Apple will not tell us how many people they have at the bottom of Station Road in that research office. But it's, it's confidential to them, and it certainly isn't in their report and accounts, because this is a pimple against their kind of worldwide business. Now, the ONS, which is the National uh, Office of National Statistics, do something completely different in trying to get this data. They go out each year and they sample around 10% of companies. The big ones they repeat sample, but the smaller ones they go around. And they have what's called a sampling frame. So they try to make sure they've got a representative picture. And then when they get the data in, they they do something called up weighting to make it equivalent to a, a national number. Now, we don't know the detail of that, and that's something which we are in discussion about them. But there's a difference between our numbers which are based upon audited accounts signed off by auditors and the Office of National Statistics accounts are data which is actually done by sample. Uh, Just to make it more complicated, they don't sample by company, they sample by establishment. So they will write to Tesco and say, how many people have you got in your branch in Cambridge, whereas we don't have Tesco's numbers, but we know how many people the region have. So there are kind of, you've just got to accept that there is not a perfect fit here. However. What it does enable us to do, and I'm sorry, this is rather small, but this is the data table, it's very fresh, uh, is actually um, list every single company in Cambridge, uh, there's a massive database behind this of all these, uh, of all these companies, uh, and we are able to show, I'm sorry, it is just really too fine here. Let me show you, the, so we break it down, these are the knowledge intensive sectors here, that's say computing and, and ICT, life sciences, uh, knowledge-intensive services uh, and high-high value uh, manufacturing, particular groups of manufacturers, and then the rest of them are sort of non-knowledge-intensive. And we can then express how many companies there are in Cambridge. Uh, so, in fact, if I squint very carefully. There are, uh, um, I think, 24,000 companies here in Cambridge, uh, of which 5,000 are in the knowledge-intensive sector. Okay, that's a. Uh, when I first started in Cambridge, there were 39 in 1979. So we have grown quite rapidly since then. And we can also then express the growth rates. Uh, and these are, these are the most material thing in this discussion. Uh, I've got there seven, uh, six year uh, numbers for um, the growth uh, and three years and last year's numbers. And the interesting thing, if, if you can read it, I'm terribly sorry, this is just too fine a detail, you have to be able to look at the, uh, I'll show you a graph in a moment. Um, but basically, the six-year average growth rate of global employment of Cambridge companies is 7.5% per annum. Okay. Just to give you an idea, if you have seven times uh, 10, you double. So you can see, actually, this is a very, a very, very high level of growth uh, in Cambridge terms. Um, not only can we actually identify by sector, but we can drill right down to the companies and back up again, so we know exactly who the drivers are of these companies and which companies have failed and so forth. More amazingly, we can actually map it. Now, this is a map uh, of the life sciences businesses in Cambridge in 2014 and 15. Now, just sit tight to i 'm going to do this twice because it's kind of visually it 's a bit odd i 'm going to show you this map for four years, okay? Now, what happens on it, each one of these rings is a bubble which is proportionate to the amount of employment at that unit. So some of them are very small, they're tiny little businesses, and some of them are larger. Just watch this. That's 1415, 1516, 1516, uh, and then 1718. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I missed one out. Sixteen, seventeen, seventeen, eighteen. okay? I guess go back again, because it's, that's 1415, 1516, 1617, 1718. Okay. That is what you are actually seeing is growth before your very eyes. <laughs> this has never been done before. This is kind of these are unique maps, and we can do it for all 84 sectors. Okay. Now what is interesting about it also is that you are also getting groups, areas of the city which is where the agglomeration is happening. So notice, not over to the west, very large, big group around right here. This is the biomedical campus. This is Baberum. This is Sanger. This is Little Chesterford. And that is um, the Cambridge. Uh, that's the South Park. Okay. So very clear sort of lumps of where this is happening. And of course, this is driving things like congestion, but also drives prices. And one of the things we can also see, and this is a very interesting thing we've never seen before, which is that low value companies can't afford to stand the heat. So actually they're moving out. So if you've got a place like Fordham Road in Newmarket, where there's a big industrial estate there, or bits of Ely, or out to Haverhill, or even out to Camborne, you will see that um, there are companies moving out from Cambridge to service the Cambridge economy because it's too expensive to be in the center. And that is actually enlarging the economic footprint of Cambridge in two quite contrary kind of, of movements. But uh, this agglomeration is, is certainly a phenomenon. So these maps and this detail is, has not been ever seen before and we can do this for anywhere in the country. It's now a technique we have. Let me show you the differences of growth rate. Okay. So the dark line here, the uh, top line, is the growth rate that we at the CBR have been calculating. Um, The lower lines in the dotted lines are something called EEFM, which is the East of England Forecasting Model, which is the model that was used in a very enlightened way by the council to try to forecast economic employment growth here in the city. In the the city, it was a bit different. In South Cambridge, it was very different. So people just did not realize how fast South Cambridge was growing. The The city had grown fast, but South Cambridge has really become where there's because of these life sciences, companies in particular, has grown very, very fast. So these are a series of tools which we now have, which we can analyze what is going on. They're not perfect. There are a whole bunch of technical issues I won't go into tonight, but essentially they're giving us a really detailed picture of how economies are spatially growing and what is actually driving the employment. And I'll I'll, I'll finish with just a couple of emerging findings before handing over to Gemma. Um, clearly, um, this sub-region has got very stressed. Uh, it's much more, growing much more rapidly than the ONS thought. Uh, even the ONS has now latterly started to say, well, perhaps South Cam's is growing as fast as we, as we thought. Agglomeration is exacerbating some of the congestion issues. And as I said, there is evidence of employment moving out from the center towards some of the towns. Um, but there is a growing infrastructure and housing deficit uh, and that makes um, the, because of the the lack of infrastructure, it makes the outward growth of Cambridge the more difficult and there is just effectively a pressure cooker at the center. Houses, households have surprisingly adapted. One of the things when I came here to Cambridge in the 1960s, you you would live in your own house. The idea of sharing a house was just, You would never think of that. You talk to young professionals and they say, yeah, Cambridge is about sharing. You can't even consider living in a house of your own. So people's uh, patterns do change. Uh, But it is putting a lot of pressure on those who have low incomes. And businesses themselves are now starting to see this pressure coming through in terms of of, um, people not being prepared to work late, productivity effects of of long commutes, and difficulties in recruiting and housing um, staff that they want to bring in as is the university. I mean, the university is right in the midst of this pressure cooker. And from the point of view of a college, for example, all my fellows, younger fellows, are now living out right away from the college so that evening life in the college is, is, is affected by that. Um, my own view is that I don't think we're gonna sort this by just doing masses of housing. I think this has to be much more driven by infrastructure to be able to then bring the housing in within a network of, I- o- o- of infrastructure. Um, but it is really important that we first of all analyse what is happening here and then can start to think about how we can create uh, solutions. So that's the end of what I wanted to say, and I'll hand over now to Gemma to talk about the housing effects of this.
0: Great, thank you very much, Matthew, and um, over to Gemma.
2: Well, good evening everybody. It's nice to see you all. Uh, first I'd like to start by just saying a little bit about uh, who I am. I have a colleague in the audience as well. So I'm from the Cambridge Centre for Housing and Planning Research. Uh, we're based here just across the road in the Department of Land Economy and next year we celebrate our 30th birthday. Um, we, so we've spent the best part of the last 30 years doing very applied research into housing and planning, so all the work that we do is very much focused on uh, how does this influence policy, how does this influence practice. So what we want is to do research that's um, of benefit and that includes benefit to the region and to our local community. So what we want to do is we want to do research that understands and helps to tackle both social and spatial inequalities. And we believe that housing and planning sit at the heart of a lot of wider social issues. So we want to do research that's relevant, that policymakers can use. And what we want to do is to reduce inequality, um, improve housing conditions, and reduce um, housing uh, problems. Our research broadly falls into four areas. So we do a lot of work around housing need, housing supply, affordability. This includes work around planning, land supply, the house building industry, modern methods of construction. We also do an awful lot of work around housing and housing models for older people in response to the aging population. Uh, We do a lot of work on housing tenure and alternative models. Matthew mentioned the increase in sharing. We've been doing research recently, for example, on co-living. But we also do a lot of work on communities because housing can't just be about the built form. It has to also be around issues around equality, engagement and improving outcomes for the people that live there. So what can we say about our local context, Cambridge on our doorstep? Well, as I think as Matthew has, has said, in a sense we're the victims of our own success. So Cambridge is without doubt a big growth area. We, we've had seen huge growth as Matthew has shown. But what this leads to is also huge demand. Businesses want to locate here, people want jobs here, and people want to live here. So Cambridge is currently recording the highest growth in gross value added of any city in the UK. But one of the consequences of this growth is that we also have very high house prices, we also have very high rents. And it isn't just that house prices are high, it's the ratio between house prices and what people actually earn. So at the moment, Average house prices and average wages are 13 times apart so the average person is never going to be able to afford a home um, in Cambridge. And we have lots of other pressures. So there's a shortage of land for development in the city and in some of the surrounding areas. It's a very competitive market for sites if you want to build things and that restricts the type of development that can come forward. Uh, As Matthew has said, we've seen an underinvestment in infrastructure like transport infrastructure We have a very tight green belt in Cambridge. We have a lot of opposition to new development. Uh, We have an area of quite low development densities. And the consequences of this is that housing growth um, can be constrained. But what it leads to is it pushes people out, as Matthew said. The consequences of this are that we have great congestion. This leads to air pollution. And it also leads to people having to spend a long time commuting with the impact that that has on people's working and uh, work life balance. So this shows, what this graph shows is the ratio of house prices to earnings. Um, the blue line is Cambridge, so this is about home ownership. And what this shows is that, so the yellow line is Oxford, just for a bit of comparison. Um, so what you can see here is that um, house prices to earnings, has been, it's been slowly growing over time. But we see a really rapid increase from about 2012, and it really shoots up. So the lines at the bottom are the national average and the east of England average. So you can see that the gap between average earnings and average house prices in Cambridge is much, much wider than anywhere else. So the consequences of this is that it's very hard to afford your own home in Cambridge. If you look at renting, it's a slightly different picture. So what we actually see with renting in comparison to income is that rents are very high, but the gap between uh, rents and income hasn't actually got worse, but we're much higher than the national average. And anybody that's tried to find anywhere to rent in Cambridge will know that it's a very competitive rental market. This is the waiting list for social housing. This is a per 1,000 per 1, households to allow for this comparison. Cambridge is the blue line. So if you can see, we were, for a long time, our waiting list was much, much higher than anybody else. And then we see a dramatic fall. And presumably this is because we've had a, a new affordable housing common stream and been able to accommodate more households. <coughs> So here we've done better. But if you're one of these households still on the waiting list, waiting for social housing because you are in uh, priority need, this is clearly a very distressing situation to be in. (coughs) Equally, homelessness. Anybody that lives in Cambridge will know that we have a a very visible and very distressing homelessness problem. Um, These are the numbers of people who've been accepted as homeless and being in priority need. So As you can see, Cambridge is is still up there, it's above the national average. Things have been improving. This is difficult data to interpret because these are people who are accepted by the local authority um, as being homeless and therefore in need of being provided with housing. It doesn't reflect the numbers who are not accepted or who maybe have had their homelessness prevented. But homelessness is clearly a problem um, in Cambridge City. Matthew has already said that Cambridge is one of the most unequal places in the country and income inequality is much higher, and actually much higher than Oxford. So the gap between the rich and the poor in Cambridge is very high. And if we want to grow, we have to try and think of ways to grow in ways that do not exacerbate the gap um, any further. To give this a bit of national context, there is cross party political consensus that we have a housing crisis. And one of the things that, one of the reasons, one of the reasons is about lack of new supply. This is a graph of house building since uh, the 1940s. So the green is the boom in council housing. This is local authority housing development. And then what you actually see is, so this line here is average private market completions over time. And it really is quite static. Um, So over the last few decades, nationally, we haven't actually built that much more housing in the private market. So way up here, beyond the reach of my hand, is the line of 300,000 new homes a year. That's the sort of general consensus of the number of new homes that we need nationally to try and meet need, and we're way down here. The gap is huge. Every time we have a recession, we lose a lot of major house builders, and this is not a sector that's very innovative. So the context to this, if you like, is a lack of national new housing supply. However, this is house building in Cambridge. This is dwellings completed. This is per capita so that we can compare. So what you actually see is that Cambridge, this is the blue line that spikes right up here. So in this period from 2012, this is our house building. If you look at poor old Oxford down here, they haven't really built any new homes at all. So in comparison, actually, we look like we're doing not a bad job of delivering new housing supply and new homes. Why is this important? Why is market housing provision important? And one of the reasons that it's important is because of affordable housing. So most people would say it's a good thing if we had more affordable housing. But in the UK, uh, since the 1990s, our national planning system has tied together the provision of market housing and affordable housing. So Section 106 of the Town and Country Planning Act ties these things together. And what it says is that um, in local authorities, it's up to the local authority to decide, how much affordable housing they need, but they can specify what proportion of a new development a house builder has to provide as affordable housing. Maybe 30%, maybe 40%. So this ties the two things together. If we don't get any new market housing, then we don't get any new affordable housing either. But again, this is not a completely negative story because there's been significant growth in the value of affordable housing secured through the planning system. So in 2016-17, about two thirds of all of the obligations that uh, developers provided was for affordable housing. This equated to about four billion pounds. So we got four billion pounds worth of affordable housing uh, through this system. And that equates to about 50,000 dwellings. So this is not a negative story about affordable housing provision. However, as Matthew has shown, in Cambridge, our employment growth has just been much higher uh, than our housing stock growth. It's not that we haven't provided any new homes, there's just far more people want to live in them. So uh, it's not that supply has been low, housing stock has increased by 4%, but demand has been exceptionally high. And so one of the consequences is a, an impact on inequality. And we are a region of huge inequalities. Um, we have a big knowledge economy, as Ma- Matthew has explained. We have an area with a big agri-tech economy, but we have significant pockets of really quite extraordinary deprivation. So what we mustn't lose sight of um, is that growth can leave certain people and certain places behind. So the Oxford Centre for Social Inclusion, they've been doing some work on what might constitute a left-behind area. How do we measure that? Um, and they've been ranking them as the most, ten, uh, the most deprived 10% of wards, on um, both community needs measures and the index of multiple deprivation. And if you put those two things together, you really get the areas that really are, if you like, left behind. And where are they? Well, the bottom 10, poor old Fenland. So there's a big concentration of, if you like, the most left behind areas in Whiz Beach. Really, this is, I mean, this is on our doorstep. This is really not far away at all in an area that's got booming growth. And what we actually see, so the Waterleys Ward in Wisbeach has the highest level of community need in the country and is now one of the most deprived wards in Europe, let alone in the UK. So our growth is leaving certain places, certain people behind. How do we tackle that? It's not just about housing. Inequality is complicated, it's multifaceted. It's not just about providing more affordable homes. We've been doing some work with Cambridge Housing Society Group, the local housing association. Um, They're running a program called New Horizons. So this works with partner organizations across Cambridge, Peterborough, and West Norfolk. And they're mostly housing associations and advice organizations. And they've been trying to tackle inequality. So what they've been doing is they've been providing coaches, people who can give people one-to-one support to people who are furthest from the labor market and most at risk of social exclusion. People can get 20 hours of one-to-one coaching on how do you manage money matters, how do you tackle work, how do you get online. And we've been working with them to see the impact of this. And what it's really shown a light is that there are an awful lot of people right on our doorstep who really are living on the edge. And Cambridge's highest scoring reason for deprivation is housing affordability and homelessness. So this program that they're running is really aimed at the people who are most vulnerable to running up rent arrears, to not being able to manage their debts, and to falling out the system completely. And these are people who are maybe facing the prospect of a downward spiral into homelessness. So this is what some of the people said. They said, I was in a bit of a state financially. I was going down the food bank getting the food parcels. And these are people in Cambridge. It was just getting me down and down and down where I was getting to the point where I just had enough. So we, despite our growth, we have a lot of people who are uh, suffering uh, through inequality. So what we've shown here is that a a project like this can have a lot of impacts. So what we see in the quote here, it said, she's got me onto a reading class. Um, I'm over the moon, before I could just pick out a word, now I can read a full sentence. So obviously a program like this can make a difference, but it does still mean that we have people in our local communities suffering from illiteracy. Uh, before I would just say, oh, I just chuck that debt over my shoulder, it's easier to move uh, than, than it is to pay a debt. Helping people in poverty to tackle debts can prevent that spiral into homelessness. Uh, she set me up with my emails. I had no emails and I had no idea how to do it. Despite our knowledge economy, we have a lot of people still who are digitally excluded. It's made me realise I'm not as silly as I thought he was. I do have a bit of brain power there helping people to feel more confident, to feel more empowered um, in order to help them maybe move closer to the labor market. So just some final thoughts. Um, When we think about growth, we have to pay attention to the differential impact of growth. We need to make sure that we support these initiatives that tackle inequality. We need to think about if all our new housing is coming from the private house builders, how do we diversify that offer? How do we make sure everybody's needs are catered for how do we make sure that what we deliver is actually affordable? How do we capture the uplift in land value that comes from that planning permission to make sure that we capture some of that for the community good? How do we tackle affordability of new housing? How do we make sure that everybody has access to a home they can afford? Um, and how do we make sure that the growth that we're experiencing um, is inclusive as well as sustainable? Thank you.
0: So thank you very much to uh, Gemma. And now over to our final speaker, uh, Dr. Ying-jin.
3: Thank you very much. Um, Now, um, I'm then looking at um, what one could do about some of these things. And uh, one of the things that I'd uh, like to point out from the start was that um, um, we should consider perhaps a longer term um, beyond the current local plans, which I'll come back to in a minute, and, uh, and also talk about growth scenarios, which I'll explain in a minute. Um, before I do anything else, this is uh, just to corroborate what uh, uh, Gemma has been saying, right? So, uh, uh, this is to do with uh, the house prices, which is in uh, black, and um, I can see it from here, um, and uh, the yellow and um, Blue lines are the upper and the lower boundaries of uh, Cambridge lecturers' salaries. Right? So uh, this is not pleading. This is not pleading. <laughs> <laughs> and um, because um, the Cambridge uh, lecturers are not uh, too badly treated um, in the economy. And uh, they're quite central. They're considered very central to a lot of innovation tasks. And if they could suffer problems like that, think about uh, so many others who probably could do. So there are people who are doing very well. And, and um, but the um, the people who um, are teaching in the university uh, are having these challenges, and also you see a little bit of uh, this line, which um, um, bit here, uh, which is um, the young research associates, right? The research uh, colleagues that we have, and w- really sort of uh, stuck ourselves actually in the labs in. Research groups actually to, to think about their payment, they are actually the people who are sharing um, the the housing right They're like Matthew says um, of course um, the the kind of uh, differences are um, very um, amazing probably the wrong word so but there's something shocking right but uh, what amazes me more is the fact that um, uh, there are still so many young people who came to this talk, and not, not actually uh, sort of to be sort of working hard actually to earn extra actually to cope with this. And uh, the system has uh, amazing capabilities to cope. And the people are ingenious in thinking of different ways. Some of these ways um, will have uh, particular consequences to their own lives, to the environment, to social inequality, and so on. And these are the things we should watch. Now. The fundamental question here uh, was to do um, with um, this. So it's really to do with how much longer could the system cope right, uh, before we come to uh, a major crisis? And this would then depend on whether there are uh, these fundamental structural problems, like inequality, uh, uh, like uh, housing affordability, and like the, uh, all the obstacles of setting up new business and so on, and, um, and whether these problems uh, would um, be gradually overcome or get worse. Right? And here, I would focus only on one problem, because we're talking about local land use and transport plans. And the problem I would want to talk about is the growing imbalance <coughs> between the geographic locations of jobs and housing. And, of course, um, when you have um, jobs growing in one place and housing growing quite far away from it, then the, the pure travel in the morning right, and uh, in rush hour would then uh, become a, a major problem. Right? So coming back in the evening is less of a problem because uh, you're, uh, you're less in a hurry. But in the morning, you have a very sharp uh, bottleneck, um, and particularly in areas of uh, uh, a historic neighborhood. And this is the graph that uh, Matthew has been showing. You can see that um, the growth is in the center and towards the south and southeast. And this is a map which I hope you can see most of it, um, uh, which is to do with uh, the colored areas which are the the main housing areas that the current local plan have earmarked for for development. The numbers of housing uh, colored uh, in the legend as you could see from that. You can also see some great patches, and uh, there is uh, one in the north, uh, uh, northwest, which is Kambon. Oh Sorry, this is the North right? The, the northeast will be Water Beach, new towns and uh, in current uh, being considered, and also Commbo towards the west. You can see these areas. And you can clearly see that um, the housing uh, currently is being expected to grow in other places, uh, from housing uh, for, from the jobs. Now, then the, the question is what to do about it, uh, particularly um, whether the new major infrastructure investments are going to address this imbalance. right? So, and the, here, the most topical issue, and uh, I uh, hope um, at least some of you in the audience have actually um, responded to the consultation of the East-West Rail. And, uh, I took a different tack from uh, the analysis in the report, and you may have read it. So I did a a simple analysis. And you probably could still see this, uh, even a little fuzzy. Um, What I did was to um, take a map right, Um, and uh, find the rail lines and find the railway stations. And for each railway station, you draw a circle of five miles. The five miles is the maximum that uh, people generally would travel uh, from a place that they live to a station. So this is called a catchment area, or effective catchment. There are people who travel longer, but uh, according to DFT surveys, these people are very few. And those um, stations with the frequent um, rail services are colored with a bolder circle. right? So you can see all of that. Um, In the Cambridge area, you can see where Cambridge is, and um, around Cambridge, um, basically the areas that are not covered by these circles are the places of uh, rail inaccessibility, right? So these are the places like landlocked countries, right? Or it's probably not as hard as that, but uh, and this would include um, the whole of Camborne at this stage, and um, uh, the major part of Stowe. Uh, and its their own uh, development. And the, the new line, in, in a sense, um, should uh, take this into account. So uh, this, it's not a time here to talk about the specific routing and so on. But uh, I think um, the, the general approach to major new infrastructure development, if it costs a lot of money, it should actually uh, be considered for what the region will need in the long term rather than what is possible uh, through the current um, system or what is possible with uh, easy technical solutions right so and now so um, matthew has already talked about a little of this project that uh, uh, cambridge AHEAD and uh, the combined authority is kindly finding us funding us to do which is called the scenario modelling project of a cambridge futures 3 and uh, what here we do, what we preach, we s- say that we take a longer per- perspective to 2051 uh, rather than the local plans uh, in and around Cambridge, uh, uh, which is around the 2030s. And also we take a, a wider geographical uh, perspective to um, extend the area of analysis to the whole of Cambridge and Peterborough and beyond. In fact, the model uh, contains the whole country and so actually people committing um, from everywhere is covered in the model, so we can look at the knock-on effects. And it investigated um, all, uh, um, well, in our opinion, all uh, uh, typical options of growth, and which we'll come to. And we look at uh, the pros and cons of each option. And we say from the beginning that uh, there are no perfect options. Uh, so there's not going to be a plan that it will satisfy everybody, no, or not even satisfy one particular person, because there always be trade offs. Um, but the one distinct feature, which is not currently being done in the local plan, was that uh, in so doing, we uh, combine the requirements of land use planning, neighborhood design, nature conservation, and transport planning as part of the scenario. So we look at all of these. Now, um, the, someone, uh, some people here uh, will challenge me to, say, uh, to ask me whether I can predict when we, the Brexit will happen. right? So <laughs> um, this is the only time I will mention this word. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then people will ask me, if you can't predict it, what else can you predict? Right? So, so that's the problem. And uh, this is a perennial problem for the people uh, like us who deal with um, uh, predictions of um, a, a distant time horizon. Uh, what we do is that um, we take an approach to separate what we cannot predict, right? And these are to do with the background uh, demographic trends, trade wars, right? a decision made by a small number of people like uh, East-West Rail, and also uncertain political process to say where a major settlement will be developed, right? So these things we cannot predict. We put these um, aside. We design particular circumstances and so that these will be used as the input to this model. And ad- what well, the model then looks at, this is the... The Tango in the middle, right? So the model then will say, okay, so assuming that uh, the job growth rates will be this much and um, it will grow in these places, housing will be provided here and transport will be be provided or not provided to link or not link uh, these developments. And what will happen, right? And then the first thing is that uh, we can look at, uh, given where people... uh, going to find houses, they so are going to find jobs, how they travel together. So this is going clockwise. And what would that uh, mean for the needs for housing and business floor space, and what the rent levels will be. And in high demand areas, rents will rise. In low demand areas, the rents will fall. Uh, quite simple. Um, and prices and goods and services and land values will follow uh, in that um, estimation. And then our Impact on wages and quality of life. And this turns around in a circle and uh, going many, many circles, and all of these actually will be linked together. And clearly, nobody's brain is large enough to contain all this actually to do the estimation. So we use computers to thread all of the data and information and ins- uh, insights into how business is going to tackle these problems uh, in terms of choice behavior. And also, um, statistical models about how consumers will respond uh, given the current uh, behavior. And what we particularly defined was that if it's decision that's made by millions of people, then it's highly predictable. But right? just like people say that, uh, well, think of uh, a friend of yours and what uh, he or she was going to respond to a certain situation usually is highly predictable, right? And so that actually then gives the model predictions subject to these uh, scenarios. Now, um, I'll just show you a few slides because uh, um, I was uh, asked not to show any equations uh, in this one. <laughs> we do have them, and uh, so those who are interested uh, come and talk to me afterwards. Uh, the computer model threads together, as I said, the knowledge and data on land use, and neighborhood design, transport, and, and places. Um, at Cambridge in the national context, and this is uh, basically that one of the pieces of data we used for uh, the survey of um, how people tr- uh, travel to work by different means of transport, um, car, public transport, and walking and cycling across the country. So this pattern is important for us because we want to see um, if you do particular housing projects, how this will have knock-on effects, not only in this region, but also in other places. And this is uh, the whole tangle uh, within uh, Cambridge. Cambridge is in the middle there. It doesn't matter, uh, uh, because the slides will be available to look at. And um, this is the commuting pattern. And uh, the lighter the uh, the rays, uh, the more the people coming into um, the center. And here is uh, the city of Cambridge from all the neighborhoods in the greater southeast, including London, which is the. the little cloud okay. here. Yeah. And um, so you can, from that map, see uh, the, the extent of London, and you can judge that uh, this is uh, an amazing wide catchment for um, <coughs> labor to come to Cambridge to work. Why? It is very simple because uh, the Cambridge labor can be very specialized. For a small number of people, those are the blue rays, which are small numbers, but they actually they come from quite far away to this area. This shows the economic power and the business activity of this place and uh, in fact cambridge has the, probably the widest uh, commuting catchment of any other city uh, 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 any city other than london itself so and also we do this for um, the donut area of uh, cambridge uh, south cambridge uh, but because it's a um a donut shape we we'll do it in segments so this one wait for it it is for the northeast of uh, north Cambridgeshire, uh, which is similar uh, this is the, the southeast of South Calms, right? So uh, coming the, is that 1307, is that right? 1301. Uh, yes, that's right, an area. And this is the interesting one. The southwest actually has a slightly different pattern, right? And, uh, uh, and this is the, the northwest. So uh, the way I show you this is to, sh- uh, to say that uh, the model will then yeah, understand uh, what actually happens uh, with um, um, this and uh, we then use the model first to reproduce what actually happened from 2001 to 2011 and then we project it forward into the future. And this is uh, the community pattern in Cambridge itself. Now, to, from a national perspective, the growth pressures are very much a result of the geographical imbalances. So, from here, you can actually now see uh, this point. Right? So and uh, I think I've covered all the others um, here. So I'll just uh, move ahead. Um, then the in terms of the model-based investigations, um, what um, it means is that if you thread all this data together, you will provide more coherent pictures of how the regions might develop. Um, and we can look at it different ways. And in terms of the base scenario, we basically look at uh, the ways uh, projecting the current trend forwards. So uh, the growth will be at a certain rate for jobs. The growth will be a certain rate for housing, um, uh, as per the local plans currently um, projected forward to 2051. And um, uh, the location-wise, um, in the base case scenario, those two would be separate, so they're not coordinated. and and then we cover in this uh, different rate of growth, right? So the, the bottom line, the orange and gray line, is what the local authorities are doing. And the, gray, the green line is uh, what Matthew says of current growth, right? So we cover the whole region. So to see how these um, uh, different um, growth rates will affect the situations. And of course, this is done by every local authority. And in fact, and if um, you then uh, look at this and using the computer model as a virtual lab to do these tests, and what actually you'll find out is that for the multi, uh, housing multiple occupancy uh, under the, the lower scenario of jobs, uh, in fact, the housing occupancy situation will improve into the future because uh, there's quite a lot of housing being built and if you don't have a lot of jobs, then housing situation will improve, right? But if you look at the green line or uh, the intermediate uh, scenario to say um, if uh, the, the jobs grow at a high rate, but not as high as the current rate even, then this situation will get worse. And similarly, for rents, uh, that's the same situation. What will happen is that uh, uh, if we continue uh, currently, even with uh, a job uh, growth rate which is um, only uh, moderately increasing, then the, the rents will increase um, quite dramatically. In this particular case, by 2051, will grow by 80%. And this is uh, to do with the morning outsh- rush hour traffic. And so for um, the, um, the low job growth and the people who commute uh, from outside Cambridge into Cambridge will grow by 32% by 2031. Um, but if you follow the green line um, with the current growth rates continuing to 2031, um, then it will be 82%. Right. So these are the, the numbers. Um, Uh, Well, because one uh, should—I'm not saying that this is going to uh, happen. Because, for example, people would just say, "Fed up, go, Uh, go somewhere else." Uh, Or actually, it it can be very quiet because uh, 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 investors are very smart. So would say, "Cambridge is going to go through Brexit. Let's go somewhere else." Right? So uh, you you could just fizzle out. Right? So this is the uh, penultimate slide. so basically, what we uh, look at then is to look at the different um, scenarios and the, to test them. I do have more slides uh, later if uh, we come to. Uh, basically, um, we think that uh, these are the four typical types of uh, uh, solutions to, uh, to address these problems. Each of these uh, green dots is a, a current urban area, which is Uh, a built-up area. Each of the blue dots is new growth, right? Each of the blue dots will contain both housing and jobs uh, co-located so that they are coordinated better. And densification means to build around uh, uh, places with good transport access, particularly around railway stations. Fringe growth is to do uh, with growing just outside um, the current area in the next field Dispersal is to grow new settlements quite far away from the existing city, and transport corridors is to uh, to build and link development uh, along this, And uh, so the blue dots actually are uh, coordinated with transport as well. And so uh, this is the last slide. So what we have achieved so far was uh, through the the four years of working and uh, with Cambridge Ahead and the Combined Authority was that uh, these uh, issues of spatial imbalance are now on the radar of the local authority. And uh, we're uh, beginning to develop more of a consensus on what gross assumptions we should consider and uh, to to look at, and also developing um, a consensus on the likely quantum of uh, additional house building that may be needed. Beyond the local plan. And uh, we have ongoing work, both, uh, and uh, this, um, I'm pleased uh, to uh, say that uh, uh, there had been interest from local authority and combined authority to look at uh, these numbers, both in the local transport plan and also in the the land use uh, plans. So uh, uh, with that, I stop.